Section 26 of Anthropology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Anthropology, Book 1, by Immanuel Kant. Translated by Adolf Ernst Kröger. Concerning Sagacity, or the Gift of Investigation. Section 54. In order to discover or detect something which lies concealed, either in ourselves or otherwhere, we need often a special talent, which tells us how to investigate properly. It is a natural gift to judge off-hand, judici prosvi, as to where truth might possibly be found, to get at the trace of things, and to make use of the slightest signs of relationship, to discover or invent that of which we have been in search. The logic of the schools teaches us nothing on this point. But Bacon of Verulam gave us, in his Organon, a magnificent example of the method by which we might discover, through experiments, the concealed quality of the things of nature. But even this example does not suffice, does not give us the needed advice as to how we ought to proceed according to fixed laws, and how we ought to manage so as to investigate luckily. For we must always in these cases presuppose something, must commence with an hypothesis, from which we have determined to begin our excursion, and this must be done according to certain indications, in accordance with certain principles. Now, the great trouble is to find how those principles are to be scented out, for it is a very bad way of indicating the proper mode of investigation by giving advice to go it blind, and trusting to good luck to expect to find a mineral mine wherever sporadic mineral indications are found. And yet there are people who have a talent of tracing the treasures of knowledge without having learned how to do so, and just as if they had a divining rod in their hands. Hence, of course, they cannot teach the mode to others. They can only show how they themselves do it, it being a natural gift. Concerning the originality of of the faculty of cognition, or of genius. Section 55. To invent something is a matter quite different from discovering something. For the thing that we discover is supposed to have had previous existence, only that it was not known, as when Columbus discovered America. But that which someone invents, as for instance gunpowder, was not at all known before the artist who made the invention either may be a merit. Again, we may find something which we do not seek at all, and then there is no merit whatever. Now, this talent of invention is called genius. Hence, this name also pertains only to an artist, that is, to one who knows how to make something, and not to one who merely knows much. Moreover, it must be an artist who does not merely imitate, but who produces his works originally. Finally, it must be an artist whose products are models, that is, deserve to be imitated. Hence, the genius of a man is the, quote, exemplary originality of his talents, end quote, in regard to this or the other kind of products of art. Hence, also, we sometimes call a mind which evinces such disposition a genius, in which case, this latter word does not stand merely for the natural gift of a person, but also for the person itself. 
To be a genius in many branches of art constitutes a vast genius, for instance, Leonardo da Vinci. The real field for genius is that of the power of imagination, for this power is creative and stands less than any of our other faculties under the compulsion of rule and is on that very account the more susceptible to originality. It is true that the mechanism of instruction is harmful to the growth of a genius, that is, so far as its originality is concerned, since that instruction compels the student to imitate. But each art needs, after all, certain mechanical fundamental rules, namely, such as shall make the work of art interpretative of the idea which it is to express. In other words, art demands truth in the representation of the object which the artist has in mind. Now, this must be acquired by studying with all the strictness of a school, and is certainly an effect of imitation. And to relieve the artist's power of imagination also from this compulsion, and to allow him to let his peculiar talent work even in violation of nature and against all rules, this may perchance result in an original madness. But it certainly cannot be held up as a model, and can therefore not be classified with genius. Mind, Geist, is the animating principle in man. In the French language, mind and wit bear the same name, esprit. In the German language, it is different. We say, a speech, a book, or a lady in society, etc., is beautiful, but shows no intellect. In such a case, the possession of wit does not come into consideration, for one may get sick of wit, because its effect leaves behind nothing that is permanent. If any of the above-named subjects or persons are to be called intellectual, they must excite interest, and this they must excite by means of ideas. For ideas put the power of imagination in motion, which perceives a vast sphere for the exercise of such conceptions. How would it do, then, to substitute for the French word génie, the German words original intellect? For at present our nation allows itself to be persuaded that the French have a peculiar word for this special intellectual gift, which we have not in our own language, but are obliged to borrow of them, although the French themselves have had to borrow it from the Latin language, genius, which really signifies nothing else than original intellect. But the reason why this exemplary originality of talent is endowed with that mystical name of genius is that the man whose gift it is cannot explain its outbreaks to himself, nor account to himself how he came in possession of an art which he had no opportunity to acquire. For invisibility, of course to an effect, is a necessary adjunct of the conception of a spirit or intellect. A genius which was adjoined to the so gifted man even at his birth whose inspiration he merely follows, as it were. But in such cases, the mental powers must be moved harmoniously by means of the power of imagination, since otherwise they would not animate, but merely cross each other, and this can be achieved only by the natural disposition of the so gifted man. Hence, genius may also be called the talent by means of which nature prescribes to art its rules. Section 56. 
We need not stop here to discuss whether the world is specially benefited by men of great genius, because they often point out new paths and open new views. Or rather mechanical minds, though having created no new epochs, have not, after all, with their everyday common sense, always progressing slowly by means of the walking stick and measurement of experience, done more in behalf of the growth of arts and sciences, especially as they never created disturbances, though they never called forth admiration. But one class of them, called men of genius, though better named monkeys of genius, have recently crept in under that advertising sign which uses the language of minds extraordinarily favoured by nature, declares all laborious learning and investigating to be bungling work, and believes it has grasped the essence of all science by one stretch of its hands, though it pretends to deal it out concentrated in small but powerful doses. This class like the class of quacks and advertising doctors, is very injurious to progress in scientific and moral culture whenever its members decide on matters of religion, politics, and morals in an unappealable tone from the heights of their throne of wisdom, and thus try to cover up the poverty of their intellect. How else can they be answered than by our laughing at them, and patiently pursuing our path with industry, order, and clearness, without paying attention to their jugglery. Section 57. Genius also seems, according to the differences of national dispositions, and of the soil on which it is born, to have various different germs in itself, and to develop them differently. With the Germans, it strikes out more in the root, with the Italians in the crown, with the French in the blossoms, and with the English in the fruit. Again, the universal mind, which understands all sciences of whatever kind, must be distinguished from genius, which is inventive. The former may be inventive in regard to what still may be learned, that is, a person of such a mind must have a historical knowledge of all that has been heretofore done on the fields of all sciences. He must be a polyhistor, like Julius Caesar Scaliger, for instance. But the man of genius has a mind not so much of extensive as of intensive greatness, making an epoch in whatsoever he undertakes. Thus Newton and Leibniz. The architectonic mind, which has a methodical insight into the connection of all sciences and how they support each other, is only a subaltern and yet not a common genius. But there is also a gigantic learnedness, which, however, is at the same time often cyclopean, namely, lacking one eye. This is the learning of true philosophy, which endeavours to utilise this mass of historical knowledge, the freight of a hundred camels, for the purposes of pure reason. The mere nature-taught man, élève de la nature, autodidacti, may also, it is true, in some instances, pass as men of genius, because they have thought out by themselves things that, to be sure, had been thought out before by others, and who are men of genius in matters that in themselves are not matters of genius. Thus, for instance, in Switzerland, there are many inventors in the branch of mechanical arts, 
but a precocious, marvellous child. Ingenium precox, like Heinecke of Lübeck, or Baratir of Halle, is of an ephemeral existence, a departure of nature from her rules, a rarity for the cabinet of a naturalist. Their premature ripeness we may perhaps admire, but it also often causes those who help to advance them to repent from the bottom of their hearts. Since, after all, the whole use of our faculty of cognition, even in its theoretical branch, stands for its advancement in need of reason, as furnishing the rule, in accordance with which alone such an advancement can take place, we may sum up the claim which reason makes upon that faculty in the following three questions, which are framed in correspondence with the three faculties. The understanding asks, what do I want? Judgment asks, what is the object? Reason asks, what is the result? The minds of men are very different in their ability to reply to these three questions. The first question requires only a clear mind which understands itself, and this natural gift is pretty common where there is any kind of culture, especially when attention is called to it. It is much more rare to have the second question answered properly, for there are many ways of determining its conception and seemingly to solve its problem, and the question arises, therefore, which is the answer that alone is exactly fitting? For instance, in conducting court trials or in resolving upon certain plans of action. There is here a certain talent of choosing the exactly right course, judicium discretivum, which is very desirable but also very rare. The lawyer who comes into court with many arguments in favour of his point makes it very difficult for the judge to decide since he himself is only groping around. But if, after having explained what he wants, he knows how to hit the point, for there is only one, then the matter is quickly settled, and the decision follows as a matter of course. The understanding is positive, and scatters the darkness of ignorance. The power of judgment is more negative, to avoid errors that arise from the gloom which surrounds objects. Reason stops the source of errors, prejudices, and thus makes understanding secure by establishing the universality of principles. Book-learning increases knowledge, it is true, but does not extend the conception and insight unless reason is added. Reason, however, must be still further distinguished from arguing, which is a mere play with experiments in the use of reason, without following the laws of reason. Thus, if the question is put, whether I ought to believe in ghosts, I may in many ways argue on the possibility of ghosts, but reason prohibits me from assuming their possibility superstitiously, that is, without any principle of explaining the phenomenon according to the laws of experience. Through the great diversity of minds, through the manner in which they view the same objects, and even each other, differently, through their rubbing against each other, and finally, through their combination as well as their separation, nature produces a marvellous spectacle of an infinite diversity upon the stage of the observers and thinkers worth their closest attention. The following maxims, which have already been mentioned as leading to wisdom, may be put forth as unchangeable commands for the class of thinkers. 
1. Self-thinking. 2. In communicating with other men, always to think, put oneself in place of the other. 3. Always to think in harmony with oneself. The first principle is negative. Nullius addictus jurare in verba magistri. A mode of thinking which is free from all compulsion. The second is positive. A liberal mode of thinking which conforms itself to the modes of thinking of others. The third, finally, is a consequent, logical mode of thinking. Of each of these modes, anthropology can furnish examples. More, however, of their opposites. The most important revolution in the inner heart of man is, quote, his exit from his self-incurred minority or subjection, end quote. For, while up to that time others thought for him, he merely imitating or following a leading string, he now dares to advance on the pathway of experience with his own feet, though at first only in a tottering sort of way. End of section 26 End of Anthropology, Book 1, by Immanuel Kant, translated by Adolf Ernst Kröger in 1867.